Today is the 19th of July, 2014, and this is episode 128. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is a new field of study. Consult your local futurist, lawyer, and investment advisor before making any decisions whatsoever for yourself. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine, and today we're pleased to bring you the conclusion of our 51% Solutions series. Tim Swanson is back, this time interviewing Gary and Manu. They talk proof of human, the limitations of Bitcoin, and cryptocurrency in the East. Also, this episode marks the beginning of our Magic Words Listener Rewards program. Listen during this episode for the magic word. Remember it, then head over to letstalkbitcoin.com. Select magic words from the LTB coin rewards menu and claim your prize. But first, Stephanie sat down with John Radcliffe, engineer and game designer. He's been playing with trivia on the blockchain and has a much bigger project in the works. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. This is Stephanie here with you. And today I'm joined by John Radcliffe. Hi, John. Hey, how you doing, Stephanie? Great. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. I wanted to talk to you today about a project that you're working on. Games with cash prizes that can be run directly on the Bitcoin blockchain. Is that right? Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that. I'm a 30-year veteran in the game industry. It's been, you know, my career, and I fancy myself a bit of a game designer, though I'm mostly a coder. What and kind of games are we talking about here? I've done three games for Electronic Arts, and I was the lead engineer on uh, Planet Side for Sony Online Entertainment. So mm. I've done a lot of games over the years. I think it's kind of interesting to see uh, people from the game industry um, who are attracted to the topic of Bitcoin, in particular, Jez San, who's now like a major Bitcoin investor. He was like my contemporary back in the 80s. I mean, we we went to Game Developer Conference together and stuff, and uh, Richard Garriott as well, uh, who practically invented, you know, the whole idea of, you know, virtual currencies in games. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense. And, you know, my own story is, of mine, Billy Zelzak, who's also from the game industry, and he told me about Bitcoins back in 2012 when he was mining them, and I looked at it, and I was like, well, these are just, you know, imaginary made-up tokens like in a game, and I, I kind of blew it off. I didn't even, I didn't, it didn't have any interest to me. Obviously, I should have looked at it a little bit deeper since then, and I've become uh, pretty enthusiastic about the, the technology, but it still is the idea of playing games. There's just something about Bitcoin that gets people when the first time you, you pay someone and they're on the other side of the world and they get the money a split second later, there's just something that's really cool about that. I don't, I mean, most people get a reaction that like my wife's in Europe right now and you know, the hassle she has to go through to change money and the fees, everybody's taking a cut. And she's going to go, uh, she's going to be in Dublin at a Bitcoin bar in Dublin next Wednesday. And I'm going to uh, Bitcoin to buy drinks for everybody in the bar while she's there. That's like mm. going to be a fun thing for me. And the fact that, that I can do that uh, is pretty remarkable. The idea of using Bitcoin for games just kind of came to me naturally and because it's it has value now. And, you know, if somebody gives you World of Warcraft gold, maybe you care, maybe you don't care. Um, but when somebody gives you Bitcoin the way the world is today, there's real value there. I mean, that's like real money. People don't throw it on the ground. 
making games where solving the game or the puzzle to the game gives you a private key that lets you, you know, take back the rewards is kind of cool. I mean, there's a lot of ways you could design a game with, with cash payouts, but there's, for some reason, I think it's kind of interesting to design games where when you solve the puzzle, you get a private key and the first person who finds the private key gets the money. That's kind of cool. Yeah. So you are describing it as basically like a scavenger hunt for private keys. Can you tell me a little bit more about how the game would work? Well, I've run a number of them. I uh, posted them on Reddit and uh, people played them and had a blast. I mean, I couldn't believe one guy, um, one guy played one of the scavenger hunts and he like went, I don't know, he like went 10 hours without sleep to solve it. And he said that was, he posted (laughs) on Reddit, he said that was the most fun I have had in like forever. Um, And basically there's two ways to, that I know of off the bat to do the game. And the other thing I was doing when I did it is I was trying to educate people because paper wallets and cold storage and all this security, it's over a lot of people's heads and uh, things like BIP38 encrypted wallets. I mean, these are very technical terms and, and part of the game was to educate people. How do you create a BIP38 wallet? How do you decode it? Um, that was kind of a, a, a part of the process. Everybody remembers the time last, I think, oh, geez, it was just last Christmas when Matt Miller was on Bloomberg channel and he handed out paper wallets with Bitcoin. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. And they stole it. <laughs> you know, that people lost the money 10 seconds later because yeah, anyone because who has the, displaying pri- the private key right on the TV screen. And so someone could just scan that QR code and get it. And they did. And that showed very clearly the risk of paper wallets. People were told at the time paper wallets were the most secure way, but they're actually really not that secure because you lose a sheet of paper and boom, your money's all gone. So that was when they, I don't know what the exact timing was, but they've created BIP38 wallets. And that's a QR code that you need a password to decode it. So one way to make a game, what I did is I created uh, Jeopardy style questions. So I created a question where the answer would be in Jeopardy form, like who is Perry Mason or something. Who is Satoshi Nakamoto? Exactly. (laughs) That was exactly an answer to one of the questions, I'm sure. So what I did was because the password for that has to be exactly correct, meaning punctuation, letters, I was at part of the puzzle was figuring out how I had formatted the answer in very precise capitalization, punctuation, if it was a proper name, et cetera. And that was the rules were explained to people. So you put out a trivia question, you put out the QR code, you give out the clue and the first person who answers it can grab the private key and take the funds. You said you posted this on Reddit. Is that like where the game would be played or would the questions be posted in other venues too? Well, that's the fun part is you can decide how you want to set up your game. However, that's 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 up to the game designer. But mm. the, the thing is, is they don't need a piece of, of software. But I actually those were the first games that I did. And there was value in that. But I actually switched away from that. And all the games that I do now use brain wallets. And for the people listening to this, brain wallets are both a wonderful idea and a terrible idea at the same time. I don't know who invented them. The, the idea for a brain wallet, people People were thinking about Bitcoin security. They thought it was very clever that your private key was something in your brain. Like you never wrote it down anywhere. What could be safer than that, right? The problem is that Bitcoin private keys can't easily be memorized for a reason. 
they have a lot of entropy. They're extremely massively large numbers. And as soon as you convert it into something you can memorize, you've lost entropy. It's not as secure anymore. So the idea of Brain Wallet was a nice idea, but the reality is it was an extremely insecure way. And, and I'll add, the people listening to this, do this as an experiment. Pick any word, name in the English language, probably any language in the world. Pick any word any word at all find out what the brain will send money to it and within 10 minutes it will be gone there are bots out on the internet which mine brain wallets because it's easier for them to do that it's it's trivial they've got a giant database of every word in the world and they just try them all and uh every time i've ever won made one of these contests um the first answer to the contest is always stolen immediately by a bot it's really quite remarkable. So brain wallets are, are really a bad idea to store secure funds. On the other hand, they're a phenomenal way to create games, giveaways, prizes, advertising. Like I said, my first contests, I did the BIP38, but then I switched to the brain wallet and the brain wallet contests are a lot more fun. Let's go back to the Jeopardy but the answer is, you know, who is Perry Mason? Well, you feed that into the brain wallet. You're the first person to get it. Boom, you get the prize. So there you just tell people a clue and they guess it. And I but you would uh, have to be to not only guess the correct answer, but also the first person to move the funds into another wallet. Right. Because if someone guessed the same correct answer right after you, they could just yoink the brain wallet away from you. Right. And then that's, in fact, what they do. That's how you you claim your prize. The games that I made that I'm most enjoyed and i think there's are you familiar with geocaching yes it's a very popular pastime and activity where people get clues that lead to a gps coordinate and when they get to that gps coordinate by hiking through the woods or whatever what they find there gives them a clue to the next location and i have a friend who's a game designer who's designed some geocaching games well if you think of bitcoin private keys as essentially gps coordinates then you realize that any game that could be done as a geocaching can be done in bitcoin space except mm. instead of trying to get to a gps coordinate you're trying to find the private key so you can lead you can create these games that are chained together so that's what i started doing is i um, ask a trivia question the answer to that trivia question is a is the private key uh to funds when you get there th- this is um I say this could be played entirely on the blockchain, but that's not 100% true. You're familiar with um, how on the blockchain info website, people can when they send a transaction, and they often do. The the thing is, the the non-technical person might naively think that that message is in the Bitcoin blockchain. It's actually not. That message is a feature of the blockchain info website. If you went to uh. some other website, you wouldn't see that message because you're, you're not uh, you're there when you send a Bitcoin transaction. I think you can embed some metadata in it, but it's highly, highly restrictive because it would cause the Bitcoin blockchain to bloat. So it's important to note that when you see those messages, they're technically not on the blockchain. That oh, said, I did not all, that. <laughs> yeah, all of the games that I've done, you actually play them on blockchain info you they take advantage of that send feature so what i'll do is i'll post a trivia question the answer to that question leads to a private key when you get there 
there's a clue to the next question, which was sent as part of a custom message. And that leads you to the next question. And the way I devised the brain wallet is that the brain wallet for the second question is the answer to the first one plus the second one. And then the third question is all three answers combined. You get the point here. The further you get along the chain, the more secure the password is. So when I send out the first one, some bot always snarfs that. But the second one, which is two answers chained together, is pretty secure. So if you have seven answers in a row, which and what I do is when people get to the end, um, then they get like a very large prize. So I might put like, you know, one millibit two millibits, then three millibits, and then have like 20 millibits. Um, I actually spent several hundred dollars sponsoring these contests just because I was having fun um, working out the game design. But when I told the story of the one guy who like spent 10 hours, he, he, he did did the um he did this style of a of a scavenger hunt where he had to get all of them in a row by sequence and when i did this in the reddit thread associated with it people were interacting back and forth and 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 pinging off of each other um so it was kind of a a fun interactive experience so the best way to do one of these scavenger hunts is to promote it ahead of time so that people know it's going to start and they can all uh compete at the same time it's like a race you say go and then everybody gets to race to the end one of the questions i wanted to ask you and you kind of answered it here was where does the prize money come from are people paying in to be part of this or is it just completely self-funded by you <laughs> where you're giving Today, away money it's been self-funded but uh, before the interview is over I, i'll i'll explain the next game i want to do and i'm actually gonna uh you know, maybe solicit somebody who I, I this is, as I said, this is a general open thing. Like, say you wanted to promote your business, uh, anything, basically, this is a great way to do promotion. Um, so I've got a game that I've been working on that um, uh, instead of it had all the ones I've done up until now had like seven prizes because there were seven questions. So it wasn't like ridiculously expensive uh, to set it up. So I could imagine someone sponsoring a contest like this to kind of promote their product or their thing. I see where that could come from. The one that I want to do next is going to have 100 to 200 prizes and it's going to take, you know, a few hundred dollars to fund that. So, um, uh, if anybody wants to contact me after this interview who's got a product to promote and would like to donate you know some for the prizes um that would be great we could announce it on the let's talk bitcoin website so people know ahead of time how it's going to work by now you get the idea about how the game is played you answer a trivia question it leads you to a private key you take the money what's involved if you want to set one of these contests up yourself it's surprisingly a bit more involved than you might think. The first contest that I set up, I did by hand. I just, you know, manually did that. And for a couple of questions, that's not that big of a deal. But when I started getting more and more questions and, and longer chains, um, it got more complex. And uh, I like to tell this story because it's to me, it was a um, it was a big event for me. I was very happy about this is I wanted a script. Um, blockchain info has an API where people who know how to do fancy scripting can script lots of queries and things against Bitcoin. I knew that was possible. Um, and even though I'm a programmer, I'm not 
I'm not a, uh, a Python scripter. It's not really my thing. So I went on to jobs for Bitcoin and I posted a job opening for somebody to write a script for me. And I offered to pay $200 because I thought the script would take a few hours to write. Uh, turns out that the script was really easy to write, but uh, I immediately got people who offered uh, to write the script for me. And there was one gentleman who showed me right away that he knew what I needed. And he uh, worked with me to get the script written and I paid him uh, for his work and the script works great. And uh, what I thought was cool about the whole thing is during the entire thing, I didn't know the guy's name. I didn't know anything about him. I, I found someone. He did work for me. I was satisfied with the work and I paid him and I don't even know who he is. And I just thought that was pretty cool. Only with Bitcoin could you do that. Um, and the script was important because the game I'm working on next, instead of it having seven questions and answers, is going to have hundreds. And uh, you couldn't set up all of these wallets and all of these addresses and fund them by hand. It would take forever. And if you made one little typo or mistake, you would break the game. In fact, one time I launched a trivia contest on uh, a Reddit thread and after posting it, realized I had a typo and had an extra comma somewhere as when I was doing these by hand. So the entire contest was ruined because <laughs> you would have had to go down the contest with the typo. So I realized, well, I can just refund the contest with the, the correct version. And then I claimed the ones with the typo to get the money back out again. So you can see the importance of having a script to do this. So what the script is doing is that it's going to take the answer to the puzzle, produce the private key, public key, send funds to it, and send the custom message that has the clues. So that's what the, the wonderful script does. But there was an interesting thing that's not at first obvious, is when you go and you run this uh, script, you're going to have some money in your blockchain info wallet to fund the the prizes, right? Yeah. So you go and you run the script. Where's the money coming from? Is it all going to come from the same wallet? I mean, you would think that, right? Okay, well if the if the contest has seven clues in it, you don't want you don't want the person playing the contest to be able to find all the other clues. But because right. everything on the Bitcoin blockchain is public, as soon as they answer one question, they can go back in the blockchain and find all the other questions. Mm -hmm. so, so the questions wouldn't be revealed unless someone solves the first question? Well, they always, the first question's always easy. But the point is, is that by solving the first question, they can go back and find out where the money came from to fund that and then mm. find all the other questions by following the transactions from that address. Ah, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Well, that's the problem. So when I do these contests, I have to run the prize money through a mixer. So everybody who thinks the only use for a mixer is to launder drug money or something, it's also used to fund contests. So I went <laughs> to BitMix.io and I set up all the public keys that are going to fund the contest and then send one transaction, it goes through the mixer. And it's kind of silly that you, you have to do that. But you really, if you don't, it kind of ruins your game. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting use for um, mixers. I really like that. Uh, the reason I said that was cool that you could potentially trace the other questions by solving one question was that, you know, maybe there would be some circumstances where you would want that, right? Like you would you would only want someone to be able to find uh, 
the other clues if they had first solved like an entry level clue or something, right? Right. But your game, you're saying it doesn't work like that with your game. My game was, is the, I mean, you can design, that's kind of the ideas. If you just take the general concept of I'm going to create clues and the answers to those clues lead to prizes, one can design a lot of of different games um you're not limited to just one i've tried a couple and there's a bunch more that you could do uh but which kind of leads me to so after i did these scavenger hunt games one of the problems was um uh people really had fun playing them and they also really complained that it wasn't fair um that because they didn't have notification enough ahead of time that the contest was going to be launched and by the time they read the reddit thread it was already over so the question i was asking myself how could i have replayability how could i have a game that you know doesn't get i I was shocked i made these trivia contests very hard and after a certain point i'm not trivia is not personally my um one of the things that's that's uh, a major challenge for this is that uh when you make a trivia contest which is by design meant to be played on the internet that means that the person playing the game has full access to google try making a trivia contest that no google search gives you the answer to that is very hard to do Mm, Um, you have to come up with questions which have never been answered asked in that form ever before because everything in history every trivial pursuit question ever asked in is every trivia question known to mankind somewhere on the internet so we had uh there's a a a young lady on uh reddit who uh, another job that i posted on reddit is i was asking people to come up with trivia questions for me and this one um person on on there who goes by the uh, handle of sophie uh she has a trivia website she just is passionate about trivia so she started designing questions and answers for me and i ran the contest and uh paid her a little bitcoin to thank her for for that uh and she provided several of them and she made some that she thought were incredibly hard and people were still able to uh google the answers um but she made a new set of questions and we'll we'll launch that I'll just start that one so that people can play it. And she tried to design them so that nobody could Google them. She claims they're very, very hard. They're movie Mm -hmm. trivia questions. But the new idea I had uh, for a way to make a game that has a lot more playability is um, this is the one I'm hoping I could maybe get a sponsor to help sponsor it. is what I call I'm calling the vaguely ambiguous trivia game. The idea being you ask a trivia question and most people's expectation is that when you ask a trivia question, there's one and only one answer. But what if there's actually three answers and they're all equally valid and correct? Mm, So the better analogy is uh, you're a young person, but I'm sure you've heard of text-based adventure games. Yeah, choose your own adventure kind of thing. Right. So the classic text-based adventure is it presents you with a a, a choice and you decide, what do I want to do? Do I want to go north? Do I want to enter the dungeon? Do I want to go here? And each one um, takes you to a next step. So you're eventually, essentially what you're doing is you're navigating a maze. Well, you can do the same thing with a series of trivia questions where you answer the trivia question and if you answer it one way, it takes you down one path. And if you answer it another way, it takes you down another path. Eventually you hit a dead end and it says, sorry, 
start over and you have to choose how to back up and replay with a different set of answers so by doing a game like that instead of just having a trivia game that has seven answers and that's it you could have one that has hundreds and hundreds of prizes and has enormous amount of replayability because even if somebody won the grand prize they're still fun in trying to go down the paths nobody else ever went down and find the little bits of treasure that nobody captured before. So I've got the script written, I've gathered the questions, and uh, that's kind of the next uh, uh, big game I want to launch. And like I said, I was looking for a sponsor because I'd probably need to fund it with a few hundred dollars because you want to have at least one millibit as a prize for every single i mean i have at least one millibit and you know that's 62 cents as of today and then you know for people who get to the end you want to have a very significant grand prize as sort of the 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 motivation and i'll probably i like to um weight it so the further you get down in the maze the bet the higher the reward is so uh but that's just an idea i have a lot of game designer friends i mean that's just one way to structure a game i think think it's somewhat open-ended and there's a part of me which is like this is kind of silly because you know people make games all the time what's special about playing a game on on the blockchain all i've done is make something way more complicated than it needs to be i get that argument but on the other hand there is something that's kind of cool about this too so I, i don't know maybe other people will think it's fun Right. You know, it reminds me of there are some companies like I think uh, Google has done this in the past, or there's also this website called mathgate.info, where um, you are getting bitcoins by solving mathematical theorems, or Google will like place these puzzles around. Uh, and they'll they'll only sort of have meaning to people who know certain types of math or programming. And then, you know, they'll, they'll follow these clues, and they'll lead to something that can get them a job. Um, do you do you ever see this being used for hiring? or for kind of like testing someone's metal? I mean, I know it would be pretty much anonymous if someone were to get the um, grand prize. They would uh, have to come forward if they wanted the job, if they wanted to claim the the job as their prize. But um, do you see this potentially as something for hiring or testing people's math skills? I think that, that you can structure a lot of reward systems based on on how bitcoin is structured i've heard some horror stories of 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 things where people set up systems where there are basically anonymous payouts for not uh you know not good activities i'm not going to get into the details but sure some really negative stuff so i i like i like pushing the game angle because games are fun and and promote and promoting your site is fun and 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 additionally the next step is rewards for solving difficult problems uh there was recently a post about uh somebody setting up a, a decentralized uh, wikileaks type thing where there's payouts for leaking information and verifying it and you can have you know mixed opinions about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I think it's just showing the tip of the iceberg of the way you can structure systems whereby 
payouts are made based on criteria being met where in a trustless way right the arbitration is based on an algorithm as opposed to someone meeting you and handing you a big check yeah it's cutting out the uh, panel of judges so to speak now speaking of like other uses for games i mean have you had any criticism like uh this guy on reddit who stayed up all night and didn't sleep you know sometimes people criticize games for being addictive or to being too fun or people spend all their time on them um or or you know perhaps some people may have uh, objections to what they see as gambling or you know there's always this puritanical kind of objection to games because they're somebody somewhere might be having fun right that's puritanism the fear that somebody somewhere might be having a good time so have you had any criticisms have you had any you know legal trouble for doing this so far no because i so one could make a game like this that was gambling where people paid a fee to pay the game play the game and then then they would share in the rewards it's just gambling right i mean if you go to a texas hold'em tournament it's the same sort of thing i intentionally donated money of my own accord and gave it away for free so you know that generates a lot of good karma and nobody can really uh complain uh these mm-hmm. were just some silly little things on reddit my actual regular job what i do for a living it goes far more to that point i i was uh, i i worked on many i worked on massively multiplayer online games games that consume mm. people's lives so my regular <laughs> job is is deals with that enough i my little reddit reddit games were were not really that much of an issue but it does uh raise a a, a question which is relatively recently and you know you can have your own opinions on this but relatively recently more and more uh adult websites are accepting bitcoin it's been actually kind of a lot happening right in the last month or so and you can have your own opinion about that but the the the, the thing is what's not surprised it's not surprising that adult websites are accepting bitcoin what's surprising is that it took them so long i mean it's <laughs> like people do not want to give out their credit card number to go to an adult website okay so i i i get there why they're switching now in a similar manner I don't understand why the computer game industry has not started moving to Bitcoin immediately. When you use existing payment systems for games, multiplayer games, online games, etc. I mean, people pay for those games. That's how we make a living. I mean, that's what we do. People are taking huge cuts out of those. And I am shocked that more and more games have, I don't know of hardly any games um, which accept Bitcoin as payment for the game, but more interesting and is kind of the point of this interview is how come more games have not incorporated Bitcoin into the game itself? Um, that, mm. you know, why do you need World of Warcraft gold when you can have Bitcoin, which has real world value? And there, there we have had that experience with Second Life where Linden Gold began to get real world value, right? They started out with a pretend game currency yeah. and then it got some real world value. Well, you could go the opposite way. You start with a digital currency like Bitcoin or, and you know, what's actually really uh, appropriate is Dogecoin because Dogecoin was always meant to be this lighthearted fun thing where there's billions of them. They make the perfect game tokens, which have real <laughs> world value. Yeah. I'm amazed in the game industry are not incorporating cryptocurrencies into their games directly only reason i don't know there's no technical problem the only reason i can see that they're not doing it um is there may be legal issues that once they begin accepting 
digital currency, you know, the, the FinCEN is going to come down on them and, and who knows? I mean, I, they, that's probably a real concern at the, in the current climate. Um, and mm-hmm. it's a shame because it points out some of the, the, the weirdness of the whole situation we're in because Bitcoin really is for practical purposes, no different than world Warcraft gold. We've just all agreed that it's, it's has value. And we as a community have agreed to give it value. And, and that's our choice. And to watch law enforcement and the government come in and try to regulate what for practical purposes is just, you know, game tokens is, is a really surreal experience to watch happen. John, thank you for sharing your passion for games with our audience. And how can people get in touch with you online? I have a programming website called the Code Suppository. It's where I insert <laughs> all of my source code on the internet. That um, is clever. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I still have people who email me and tell me they that I they don't think I know what that word means. I'm like, I know exactly what it means. Um, <laughs> so I have a uh, that's my personal sort of computer, and I do a lot of open source Bitcoin. Uh, development. I've written some uh, Bitcoin source code. I've done a bunch of documentation. I have posts on there from previous games. I have posts on there about how to make games like these of your own and how to set them up. Uh, I have extremely detailed documentation about the Bitcoin blockchain. If you want to parse the Bitcoin blockchain yourself, write your own computer code. I've also released open source code to analyze the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, And I've done all this just out of sort of home hobbyist thing. And None of this is my business. I don't make any money off of it. I have no interest in making money off of it. I always leave a tip jar, not because I need money, but because there's a beautiful acknowledgement that when someone sends you a tip, I don't care, send me a penny. Um, but mm. it shows that they appreciate that. I've been a member of the open source community for forever, and I've benefited from open source code my entire life, and I feel a debt, and I pay that debt by giving open source code out myself and now with bitcoin when we release open source dude put a tip jar in there somebody if i download a piece of open source code and it saves me hours of my time because you did this for me guarantee you're getting a bitcoin tip from me so that's something i'm super excited about us is how cryptocurrencies can provide some lifeblood to the open source community, which has been largely a thankless task for all these years. People do all this work and they don't even get an attaboy. And uh, so <laughs> yeah, I'm, that's true. I'm pretty passionate on that topic. So that's what's on my coding website. And I'm on Reddit at jratcliff63367. Also, when this goes live, when we put the post up, let's put a, a, a launch, a, a small scavenger hunt so that the people can play one of the games. Very cool, John. Thank you so much. No problem. Today's episode, in addition to our LTB coin sponsors, is brought to you by CryptoKit. CryptoKit is a web wallet that installs right into your Chrome browser, so it's always there when you need it. It also has a Google News Reader in it. Here are the headlines for the 19th of July, 2014. New York unveils bit license rules. Dell begins accepting Bitcoin. Digital money will flow as Bitcoin conference meets in Chicago. Blockchain.info releases new Android wallet app. Bitcoin price. Will lightning strike twice? You too could have this news right in your browser about Bitcoin. Check it out at CryptoKit.com. The high sponsorship number on episode 128 is 31,000 LTB coin for BitShares.org. 
courtesy of LTB community member Strip. CEO Dan Larimer is actually the bulk of episode 129, the one coming directly after this. He, Stephanie, Andreas, and I recently spoke about their rather innovative technologies that are nearly ready for release. Rather than use the technology and code pioneered by Bitcoin, they reinvented the wheel. People talk about that like it's a bad thing, and I've certainly complained about it in the past. And surely if all you wanted was a vehicle, then maybe any wheel is good enough because it gets you to your goal faster. But that's not always the point. BitShares is a new code base, a new wheel. They're claiming 10-second confirmation times, built-in stealth addresses where you only have to send to a username and still have complete privacy, and stability at 10 transactions per second, which is, broadly speaking, better than Bitcoin. Will BitShares succeed? I don't know, but if you're interested, you can check it out at bitshares.org or bitsharestalk.org for their community forums. Today's magic word is puzzle. P-U-Z-Z-L-E. Puzzle. You've got until Tuesday, the 22nd of July, to visit letstalkbitcoin.com, log into your account, and submit your magic word to claim your share of the community LTB coin. Today's second sponsor was a fun story. Myriad Coin is the first multi-proof-of-work cryptocurrency in which five algorithms compete to solve blocks on the same blockchain. So while Bitcoin only uses one, Myriad Coin uses five algorithms, SHA-256, Script, Scheme, Qubit, and Myriad Grossel. There's a lot here if you want to dig into it, but the too-long-didn't-read version is, if centralization of power is a problem, Myriad Coin provides a whole lot of solutions. They say this results in much more decentralized mining, greater network security, the framework for competitive ASICs, and the return of accessible mining for the underbanked. This sponsor was a fun one to watch. Brian Cohen over at bitofthis.com sponsor brokering services worked with their r slash coin community on Reddit, and as with many coins, the community appears to be a feature. <laughs> they were gracious enough to prepare many, many notes for me, and uh, I'm thinking maybe you guys should start a podcast to keep us informed about what's going on. So that's it. If you want to hear an update about LTB coin, listen after the credits. Now pleased to share with you Tim Swanson's interview with Manu, and then at the end, Gary jumps in too. Enjoy the show. I'm 30 years old. I'm a former IT consultant. I was consulting and specializing in Oracle database technologies in my early 20s. About five years ago, I switched to Indonesia. I've been living out in the jungles of Borneo for the last five years in something of a self-imposed isolation, I suppose. And I've just recently moved back to civilization, I, I suppose you could say. And now I'm living in Ubud, Bali. There's a lot of uh, exciting things going on here is in terms of the emerging crypto economy. There's a lot of adoption here. ATMs are just about to arrive, I'm running an educational course, teaching people how to use wallets. And uh, Gary's been doing a lot of work setting up the Bitcoin Ubud group and getting merchants on the technology. The first exchange here just launched, online exchange, which seems to be uh, backed by the central bank of indonesia they're giving it its support and, and it's generally having the environment here at the moment legally seems to be pretty good for for owning and using bitcoins so we're also working on a, a podcast at the moment called eastern bitcoin to follow all the the trends going on down this part of the world and also bring in a bit of asian culture and uh, asian philosophy in terms of economics and the other project i'm working on at the moment is this future platform which has implications for what the the topic of discussion is today, which is the current 
limitations of the Bitcoin model and Bitcoin mining. So I started with Bitcoin early last year, about April, I suppose. I was doing I was doing Bitcoin. Uh, I, I did a bit of mining, got into that, did quite well with that. I was probably the only Bitcoin miner on the island of Borneo. And I know a few people that are actually in mining out there. I used to joke with them that, you know, we're in the same business. I've been observing the evolution of, of the the mining paradigm, if you like, and the ever more centralized nature of it, the, the harder it's become for people to participate. I'm sure this is repeated information. Uh, I'd like to elaborate on what I believe to be the primary flaws in the current model, if you like. So as we all know, yeah, it's becoming ever more centralized. It's something of an environmental disaster in the making. If it was to become a support worldwide, the, the majority of transactions would consume too much energy, too much storage space. But there's also the, the problem of the distribution. Rather than um, a mining algorithm, I would call it a, a wealth distribution model or a token distribution model, and that the, the majority of the funds have already been released, whereas I personally have no problem with early adopters having rewards for their risk-taking and their innovation and their efforts. This is often serving as a barrier for people to enter enter the, the, the Bitcoin uh, the, or the crypto economy. Listeners might be interested. The way Bitcoins were distributed, they used an asymptote. So basically right now, 62% of all to- tokens that have ever been mined have been already distributed. So the next 38% will be you know, handed out for the next 100 years. But of that 62%, <laughs> the majority were the first four years in a front-loading process. Uh, we could you know, obviously go on, but uh, yeah, this, it's important that... You, for, for some people, as, as you mentioned, especially in developing countries, how do you get a hold of Bitcoins that's just becoming late and so on? Exactly, exactly. How do you get these things? This is The demand is here. People are, are wanting Bitcoins left, right and center here. And they're like, how do we get these things? Uh, and how do we store them? It's easy enough to run a course on, you know, this is how cryptography works and this is how a wallet works and this is how you can safely set up your processes so you don't need a bank anymore. And then comes the question, how do I get the damn things? So, um, yeah, big barrier there. It's a long way away from what it originally was that anyone with a computer could, you know, join this distributed network and uh, start participating and supporting and start getting coins through that way. That's that's how I got my initial coins. And it's just not accessible to the general public anymore. There was a company released on the Australian stock market the other day with, uh, I think, $10 million worth of mining hardware. I mean, this is what it's become. It's so, it's so uh, I believe, to be different from the, the original paradigm of, uh, of distribution. Proof of work was the original model. And, and then, uh, you know, proof of stake is very interesting. Proof of work is, um, uh, they both seem to be deflationary in their nature. And I, I, I personally don't like deflationary models. Uh, I think they create hoarding of wealth and a barrier to entry for new participants. To give the listeners an understanding real quick, uh, what, what he's actually talking about is initially, actually, Bitcoin is highly inflationary in terms of like, for example, this year, 11.1% of the money supply is being distributed, but long term, it's deflationary. Uh, as a whole, though, it's inelastic. And that's what he's referring to, right? That's what you're saying, saying it's, it can't be moved based on specific demand, correct? Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm referring to it as deflationary in terms of other valuation against 
other old world fiat currencies rather than in the nature of its supply. And, and this concept of is it Gresham's law of the bad money driving out the good. People get their bitcoins and they want to hold on to them. They don't want to spend them. They don't want to use them because they believe in value once they understand the, the fundamentals of how fiat currency or central currency is, is issued. They don't want to spend their bitcoin and, and it becomes more an asset that's hoarded and not spent, which is um, another barrier for its adoption uh, in society, I, I believe. I don't know if technically that fits the, you know, the textbook definition of deflation in, in economics, but does it make sense what I'm saying? <laughs> sure. No, I, I, I make similar arguments. I'm not popular for it. I, I'd love to hear your solution, though. So then, you know, proof of stake was interesting. It's even more deflationary, I believe, because you have to put your funds into the network just to to have your vote in it again incentive not to spend them incentive to hoard them proof of resource came along with made safe that's really inspiring to me very very cool and uh, another uh, evolution on distribution algorithm or model and this is going back to more of a model of anyone can participate i can go in and i can create you know i can i can put my bandwidth up for for sharing and my computer for sharing everyone has access to that everyone can do that and this can facilitate a much easier adoption of tokens in society the the model i've been working on is slightly different again i call it proof of human basically proof of human is tying in the wealth generation model into a, a, a tied equality across the network of each human node. This would provide a foundation for anyone to get on board at any time and start actually having their energy as a human being, which is probably the great equalizer throughout all of mankind in that we all we all have our own energy we all have our own capacity to work and contribute to society and we all have time the coin itself would be tied to the very nature of time so not not based on a the decimal system of coins and micro coins but based on days hours and minutes and this forms a part of a, of a greater platform that we're working on. This is probably one third of, of that model. I can't talk too much about the, the other elements, but I can definitely go into more detail about the proof of human concept. Two questions I have for you this. How, how do you actually get Bitcoin miners to implement something like that? Like if, if, if you see this issue with centralization, is there a way for you in your mind that code can be implemented uh, that will be accepted by the miners or is that a no-go or what, what how do you go about fixing this situation i don't think it really would work with miners the whole nature of mining you know making something mine it's quite different from gifting, if you like. And I'm a big fan of all the different, you know, I'm, I'm an active student of all the different altcoins that are, that are constantly in development. I think personally that it, you wouldn't have a transition from Bitcoin into, into these new, the miners themselves, uh, you know, with their hardware that can't do anything else, but, you know, especially with ASICs that can't do anything else, but mine a bitcoin and if if bitcoin mining stops their their asic hardware is not useful for anything else except perhaps a boat anchor so the bitcoin miners will never want to move away from 
their mining model because they have bound themselves too tightly to to doing just that. I mean, back in the days of CPU miners or GPU miners or what are they FPGAs or whatever they're called, those mining hardware technologies were still versatile and could be used for other things. But now, you know, you can't mine with any of those things anymore. They're not they're not um, energy efficient, and you can only really mine with ASICs. And if mining doesn't exist in its in its current form uh, of uh, what is it? RSA two five six or whatever. Then, then all that mining hardware becomes redundant. Yeah, exactly. So they're never going to move away from that. They have too much invested equity in in their mining hardware. And I, I see Bitcoin as a it's a gateway crypto. You know, it's like a gateway drug in that people can start to understand the concepts of trustless transactions, crypto economy, how to take back your your wealth from a trusted third party and, and become your own bank so you're not susceptible to mismanagement at that in that third party trust. So it's good for all those sort of things and it's an, it's an amazing brand and it's still the majority of the world, especially out here, very few people have heard of even Bitcoin. So they're, they're a long so way away does, from getting onto an altcoin. Hey? How, does, how does proof of human, how are you... Available? Availing yourself of decentralization issues. It's very tricky. Um, it's, it's a very difficult problem, and and I think it would be the um, epitome of true, uh, truly distributed system if every node was tied to equality based on the very nature as human beings. Um, there's no opportunity for plutocratic subversion of the system, for example. If I have more money than you and I can buy more hardware than you, then uh, then I can control the playing field. You, you couldn't do it with capture. You know, this this and this comes back down to the Turing tests. The, sure, couldn't um, you automate something like that with mechanical Yeah, you, you could, you could. But that's like putting speed humps in a road. You're just ruining the road, you know. You're making it slower just because someone doesn't know how to drive properly you're slowing down people you're, you're getting them to do arbitrary tasks which which is a poor solution in my mind it's just like you know the arbitrary nature of mining bitcoins is uh the arbitrary calculations are a waste of energy and so then i've, I've been exploring this how, how do we verify on a technology base who's human and who's not yeah, capture is okay for a one-off authentication and bots are becoming progressively more advanced in image recognition and image processing and and that's a constant arms race going on there as well the really the only way that human beings can verify one another i believe is through actually verifying one another and and that is called a social network well, you know, people can game social networks too. Like you see fake people oh, on Facebook absolutely. and LinkedIn and stuff like that. So how absolutely. do you prevent how do you prevent civil attacks or how, how do you prevent people from just spamming the network with fake identities? Well, I've been playing with a variety of models and I, I won't pretend to have solved that problem. That's the one I'm that's the, the main problem I'm currently working on uh, with the mathematician. Oh, do you remember the original rollout of uh, Gmail in that it was yes, invite inv- only, in- right? Exactly, invitation based. And then those invitations propagate through the world. Now, if you really believed in this system, and there would be a sort of, there's a very, very basic social contract involved in the system as well, which would basically be, be human, you know, (laughs) don't create bots. That's it. That's the only rule. How do you enforce that? I, I wouldn't want to enforce it through some. If you, as soon as you create an, a centralized authority to enforce anything, then you're you're broken already. Um, sure, you need I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. How, how do you disincentivize not being human and incentivize being human? 
Yeah, exactly. By providing incentives so that if you, this is the current idea I'm working on, and I would love more feedback from the listeners or, or other people that would like to participate in this debate. But you, you provide limited invitations, and then you propagate those through social groups that initially that would definitely prefer to rather than create a second fake account they would rather share this technology just like gmail back in the day you get gmail are you going to create a second gmail account with your one precious invite that all your friends are saying hey can i have an invite too are you going to give that to yourself or are you going to give that to your your best mate you know and and he gives it on to his best mate so it's it's more advantageous to give it to to a real human being than to get re-gift it to yourself now the other thing this would be combined with would be every time a new node is formed on the network this would be like a, a hard node this would be your original connection back to the system itself if i uh, you provide an incentive to the initiator of the invite so that uh, if they invite someone that starts making bots and that's that there's some sort of penalty as that as that uh, flows back to the source node of the invitation. So this um, sounds a little like Mike Kern's trying to do with proof of passport kind of idea. So my question mm. to you then is figured out some kind of way to do the, the actual nodes, who the nodes are. What do these nodes do? Like what is being transacted? What is the actual cryptocurrency that you're pushing? Like What, what exactly is the function of proof of human leverage of a lot of the um the code base of the open source code base from proof of resource the the most basic function of the network is to propagate transactions across the network uh so for example uh you know your your data is uh your that you don't want to lose that you want back up that propagates in an encrypted form to the trusted nodes that you choose and that could also be bound with some payment coming back from those nodes for the provision of that service to store your encrypted data. And there's also this, this current problem of the privacy paradox. You know, sometimes we want trust, sometimes we don't want trust. How do you resolve that? Through investing your trust in your trusted peers, you know, your family and close friends and empowering them to have the ability to arbitrate on things that happen with you. You could do things like, uh, for example, if you were identity theft or, or you had you, you somehow lost your master key for for your identity, you could have it so that your closest peers through consensus decision making could re-release a new master key for your identity as a way of uh, again this proof of human verification of your of who you are by your immediate peers of your choosing so i I see what you're saying in terms of you're you're trying to start off from a node based identity based management verification based uh, management. So how does that tie into though the actual, you know, what you were talking about your, your, your frustration with the money supply, where, where's mm-hmm. the money supply in this? How, what, what are these tokens? Is this pre-mined? Is this mined? Is it just handed out because you want to hug these people? What's the actual process? There's no mining as such. The, the concept is, and this is, it's kind of tied back into uh, the gift economy that the the funds would be generated through participation in the network through provisioning of of resources i just don't understand mm-hmm. like where is where is the money coming from does it fluctuate does it uh change based on different transactions per day like mm-hmm. Fluttercoin, they had proof of transaction like how, how does it's it's tied it's tied to time 
It's like representative of human energy, if you like. Everyone receives a single coin a day that can be broken down into smaller coins. And um, this is just through participation in the network, through being proven as a human being on the network. That's all. So let's say let's say you, you and I have these, I guess, digital wallets of some kind, and we have somehow proved each other's identities with this invite yeah. mechanism. And it's cryptographic. Yeah. Let's just hand wave the whole thing. Okay. okay. But I want to yeah. know, like, where do these tokens come <laughs> from? Like, how, how do I get them? And like, how can I spend them? And how do we, what, how, what's the timing? Is it like a 10 minute confirmation, you- one second, et cetera? That, that level of detail in the actual technology, like confirmation times and things like that, I haven't, I haven't invested time in actually modeling. You know, that's, that's, for me, that's later down the track. That's, that's when uh, we bring in more programmers and actually start playing with the code base and things like that. Uh, as far as spending goes, just like any other altcoin, once it's linked to other exchanges and starts to have a value based on other tokens and other currencies, then you can start to spend it. And then and it's just like exactly the same as Bitcoin. Once someone has has faith in a token and will accept it for their product services, then its value increases and, and you can use it more easily. And if you're still needing to interact with people that haven't adapted uh, or don't, don't believe yet or, or don't accept that token, then you need to exchange that token for a token that they do accept, like a, like a Bitcoin or like an old world fiat currency. Old world fiat currency. You, you do. <laughs> listeners do know that you have digital fiat currencies, right? <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. This is a uh, very interesting. I, I'd love to hear more about what you plan to do with the actual like the money supply to make it elastic, so that way it can fluctuate based on actual demand or actual currency itself into a kind of form of um, demurrage. Because. Um, yeah, so it can sort of find a middle ground between sort of deflationary and uh, an inflationary model. I'm playing around with tying the the coin themselves into either um, radioactive uh, like half-lifes or some other form of energy degrade. So this is kind of trying to mirror the nature of energy itself as a human being. So, you know, if we have our energy and we have our effort, you know, and we can, you know, if we sit on the couch for a week, we can save that up and uh, have a bit more energy but if we if we don't do anything with our energy it's gone you know you want to have a having day you want to do block reward having something like the circulation of this currency or whatever you want to call it is mm. is low lessons based on the fact that you're not using it is that what you're saying you know that all currency that's created is is all degrading at the same rate you know they could do like a half-life of seven years for the coins as they're generated so that uh after 50 years all the the you know a coin is is totally dissipated while rewarding early adopters that, that come on board and start generating coins first it also provides some sort of plutocratic resistance i guess you could say you know that even if people come in and buy up all the coins after a while that current wealth will dissipate so there's a protection against you know like right now if you want to get a lot of bitcoin you can build a supercomputer or you can just buy them all have you looked into freight coin because that's what mark friedenbach has been trying to freight push coin. the last couple of years uh, yes i will look into it i haven't heard of it that's uh the thank you uh freight coin what's the name of the guy mark friedenbach he's a bitcoin core dev his name his handle is like maku and he's it's, it's f-r-e-i 
coin. And he takes the idea of Bitcoin. Oh, Frycoin. Yeah, 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 yeah. My friend is in touch with the, the developers there. He was offering to put me in touch with them. That's cool. That's cool. That's great that um, he was saying I'd like that as well. Awesome. Well, uh, interesting. So uh, you have a colleague here. Gary started the Bitcoin group in, in Ubud and has been starting the process here. And we're, we're working on a podcast together. We know you've put out a appeal for for new podcasts called Eastern Bitcoin. So Gary's a big fan of Let's Talk Bitcoin as well. So I invited him to come along and, and listen in on the chat. Do you want to say a few words about yourself, Gary? I'll go on mute. Sure. I've been here in Bali since February, basically trying to build the Bitcoin community here. And uh, lots and lots of in- interesting people roll through Bali. Listening to the appeals for podcast material from, from Adam from time to time on the podcast, we thought that um, there was a segment missing, sort of the Eastern perspective. There's lots going on in this part of the world, lots of interesting people doing interesting things, and it might possibly deserve some focus at some point in time. Anyway, it's it's a, it's a concept at this point, podcast about the, the things that are happening in Bitcoin in this part of the world, and uh, also the personalities and projects that are here. Well, it's nice to meet you. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Nice to meet you too. Big fan of the show. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention? I'd like to put out an appeal to uh, anyone that is interested in this to contact me. I can be reached on i.manual at gmail.com. I'd love to work with uh, any uh, economist that finds it interesting, mathematician or um, distributed programmer. Things are still at the white paper stage, so whatever solution that does or doesn't materialize from the work that we're doing right now, it's not going to be a a solution for the mining problems uh, next week or next month. Thanks for listening to episode 128 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show is provided by Adam B. Levine, Tim Swanson, Stephanie Murphy, Gary, and Manu. This episode was edited by Adam Levine and Denise Levine. Music for today's show was provided by Jared Rubens and Gertie Beats. The 5 Forum Post promotion still has one more weekly distribution, totally nearly 2 million LTBC remaining. So sign up today. At letstalkbitcoin.com, we're cranking out content like crazy. The writer interface is available to anyone with an account, and we were immediately flooded with more content that our system could properly deal with. Andrew from the upcoming Crypto for Change blog has taken over as managing editor, and we're designing the new editorial system now. Head over to the forums to check it out, join the conversation, or get involved. We're in full development mode. Things are changing quickly on the site. Giving a post or a comment a like now rewards that participant with a small amount of proof of participation points. Each week, all the proof of participation points are added up, and then the total amount of LTB coin that are rewarded to the audience are divided based on each community member's participation in this number of points. So that means that by giving someone a like is sort of like nudging the game a little bit in their favor to the detriment of the whole community. Each individual can like any post a single time, and every time you do that, uh, that person has their participation score improved a little bit, it's half a point, which increases their share and reduces it for everybody else. I'm taking the time to explain this to you in detail because I'd like you to recognize that it's a nice thing to do for a person, but it also comes at a cost to the community. So have fun. So that's about it. We have some development roles where you can help us build the platform out faster and secure your stake of LTB coin while we're still new and poorly understood. Uh, Other than that, I'll see you guys on Tuesday. Thanks for listening.